to uh, look at uh, racial unity uh, every year um, around Martin Luther King Day, which is tomorrow. Uh, the church comes together and, and we, we focus in on this specific topic of racial reconciliation, racial unity, racial harmony. Um, and, and we do this because it's, it's important. Like it's, it's something that we need to look at. It's something that we need to examine. And truly, it's not something that we should just look at once a year uh, on, this, on this weekend, but, or I guess week, beginning of the week, uh, but something that we should look at all the time. And I'm aware that it's uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable being given this topic to preach on. Um, as a, as a uh, predominantly white congregation, uh, it's something that's uncomfortable to talk about. Uh, and, and there's reasons for that. We're going to look into it. Um, but know that it's good. Know that this is something worth pursuing. And the uncomfort that you feel or may feel um, needs to be examined and, and then displayed in light of the cross. And so we're going to look at what Jesus has to say on justice, on racial uh, reconciliation and unity. Um, and I'm aware of how uncomfortable it can be. Um, and so as we uh, get ready, I, I just want to, I want to pray. Um, I want us to set our hearts and our minds on this. And, uh, and then we'll, we'll jump into it. Father, I'm thankful, Lord, that you have called us to hard things. God, you, you haven't left us in our sin. You've called us to examine ourselves and examine our lives in light of Scripture. And you, you make it possible for us to change. Father, uh, as we examine what it looks like to be uh, ethnically diverse and racially unified in a country where uh, just even mentioning it is hostile, God, may we be different. Father, may the meditation of my mind and my heart, God, be pleasing in your sight as I, as I preach. And we, we invite your spirit to stir our hearts. Please do this this morning. Amen. So, a lot of you, uh, we've, it's, it's different because we've got a lot of people that have not experienced uh, what a racial reconciliation Sunday looks like at the crossing. This is something that we have done from the beginning. Um, and so I want to take some time to, to kind of bring those of you who are new into what this looks like for us. Um, and so the, the way this sermon is going to go is going to be a little different because I, I want to I set up for you what we're talking about. Because race in, in America is, is so politically divisive. It's so, um, uh, it feels morally divisive, and I think I want to suggest that all of that has to do with bad definitions of what we're actually looking at. So I want to set up for you what that looks like. So if, you, if you've been at the crossing for a long time, this is not going to be new to you, but it's something that we need to hear. Uh, we need to be continually reminding ourselves of what this looks like. And so um, I want to start first with what racial reconciliation is not, and and. Even before that, I'm gonna I'm gonna change terms probably throughout uh, this sermon of racial reconciliation, racial unity, racial harmony, um, because I think those three words together kind of give us a a bigger picture of what that actually looks like. Uh, racial reconciliation uh, is truly what it should be, but I think because of our culture, that that has been uh, shaped into something that 
may even right now in your heart be giving you some pushback to what I'm saying. Um, and so we're looking at racial unity and harmony and, and all of that. So uh, what, what it is not, what racial reconciliation is not, it is not diversity only. John Piper in his book Bloodlines suggests that uh, when, we, when we preach and teach that we're, we're searching for diversity in our churches and, and that's it uh, because heaven is diverse. That is so true, but hell is also just as diverse. And so if diversity is all we're seeking and unity isn't there and harmony among those races is not there, uh, then we've missed it. And so it's not diversity only. Um, you can also look at it from, from the historical lens of, of a plantation. Plantations were very diverse, but, but we see in that diversity, there's not unity, there's not harmony. There is a, a power struggle and a domination of one race over another. In a, in a very diverse uh, setting. So what it is and what racial unity, harmony, all that is and what we're going to be digging into um, is unity among the races. We, we have unity uh, where there shouldn't be unity, where, where a society has set up a culture that uh, separates and segregates. Uh, in the church, there should be unity. Harmony among the brothers and sisters, racially. So just like we have harmony among ourselves because of Christ, that should be there among races. We should see that. There should be a love and an affection and a compassion for other races uh, outside of our own. Um, and then it's close to the heart of God. And that's really what we're going to look at. Justice and racial unity and harmony, all of this is deeply connected to the heart of our Father. Um, and so even, again, before I keep moving forward into this, I want, I want to be careful that, that we are not just dismissing all of this because uh, we, we are a predominantly white church. And, and so it, it can be easy to kind of check out or, or uh, see this as... as um, racial stirring of the pot uh, that may seem unnecessary, but if we're going to function and, and look like and be the church in a city that is ethnically diverse, we need to be ethnically diverse ourselves, and there needs to be unity in that because our, our city is not unified. You can literally draw a line through Monroe and, and see the racial segregation. Louisville Avenue, right there, bam, racial segregation. We know that. We, we, we desire diversity, we desire unity. So it's important that we press into this in the uncomfort. And so I want to ask uh, you a few questions as we move forward uh, to consider as, as you're listening. Are you uncomfortable with what's being said? Are the, are the words coming out of my mouth making you uncomfortable? And if they are, don't check out, but, but press into that and ask why. Why am I uncomfortable with what he's saying? Do you feel pushback? Where, where do you feel pushback to what I'm saying? Um, and, and when you feel that, ask, what is the cause of that? In, in your own heart, what is causing the, the pushback to the things that I'm saying? Racial reconciliation is a difficult topic to talk about. Uh, I was beyond thrilled when I was asked to, to preach on this because in my own heart, I, I'm aware of just how difficult it is for me even to consider it because I know that I'm part of the problem. 
And so I'm up here preaching and teaching this to you guys, knowing that there, there are dark places in my own heart that need to be fleshed out, need to be brought to light. And, and I'm asking us all to do that. And so one of the reasons that this is so difficult to talk about is the history of our country. In 1619, the first Africans were brought to America as slaves. And in order to deal with that, in order to deal that, that one group of God's image bearers were going to place another group of God's image bearers under servitude and slavery and, and abuse and oppression, in order to make that happen, whites in America had to create a system that made that morally okay, that, that dealt with the conscience. Because there, there, there's, a, there's a separation that happened when slavery entered into this country where one race, whites, said another race, blacks, are, are inferior. And so we have things like racial science that came up where, where people, colonial people, are looking for a scientific reason to say this, this race of people are inferior to us. They need to be enslaved. They need to be dominated. They need to be oppressed because they're not, they're not at the same level as we are. And so, again, I'm, I'm aware that there are other races than black and white in this country. And, 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 and so what I'm saying applies to all, all races. But the, the tension, the point of tension begins with, with blacks and whites in this country. And so most of what I'm saying is going to be dealing with that but you can apply it across the board. We, we created a system that said blacks are inferior to whites and need to be subjugated, need to be controlled. And we separated it politically. And we separated it, so the, the idea that, that we are made in God's image was separated from this political Points that this is necessary, this is economically beneficial, they need to be subjugated, and, and we created that separation in our country. And so race science began, and whites began to subdue blacks in slavery. And this, at the same time, begins the modern, what we know is today the modern police force, where we have uh, men with guns and dogs policing slaves to make sure that they are kept in line and using any slave that may revolt or run away as an example to create fear and, and dominate one race over another. And this, this has happened for this happened from 1619 to 1863 when Abraham Lincoln gave the Emancipation Proclamation. So for 240 years we have this, this kind of white oppression over blacks. And it's, it's evident. And then the Emancipation Proclamation happens, and it's solved. For 90 years, we have what's known as Jim Crow Law, which is legalized racism in our country. 240 years of slavery, Emancipation Proclamation, 90 years of Jim Crow. Jim Crow laws uh, continue to racially oppress black people in our country. Black people are arrested in droves because of the 13th Amendment, the amendment that gave them their freedom and said that we would have, uh, there would be no slavery, no indentured servitude in this country except for loophole criminals. So the 13th Amendment, which was originally designed uh, to set 
slaves free also included this original design to put them back into oppression and slavery when they broke the law. And so you can imagine as white slave owners are, are forced to give up their, their slaves because of Abraham Lincoln's proclamation, they have created this legal design to k- keep their slaves in slavery, arrest them. And so prisons are filled with African-Americans forced back into the very oppression that they thought they were out of. And then we have legalized segregation, which dominated the South. Where, and it doesn't look like it's much more different now. There's a white section, black section. Everything was separated by race. And for 90 years, this happens. And so that leads us into the civil rights movement where we have a decades-long struggle by African-Americans to end this legalized racism, legalized discrimination, disenfranchisement, and segregation in the United States. And, and this, this finally happens in the 60s. Like, that's not that long ago. Some of you in this room were alive when all this was happening. And so that leads us into our present circumstance, our post-civil rights world, where, where the initial pushback by white America is to say, well, we don't see race anymore. It's not a thing. I'm colorblind to that. I treat all people the same. That's how I was taught. That's how I was raised. Which is good. You should. But that's not helpful in this conversation because we as Americans are aware that there is a difference. And, and it's like, it's uncomfortable to say, but I'm up here saying that in America, it is better to be white. And we know that. And it's, and it's a hard thing to say. It is an uncomfortable thing to say because in the moment of saying that, there, you're, you're creating a difference and you're creating a problem that now we have to deal with. Saying things like, I don't see race or I was raised to treat all people the same helps us skirt our responsibility and keeps us from having to deal with the fact that inside we know that it's better to be white. We, we skirt that responsibility by pushing it off. We're all the same. We're all equal. And at the end of the day, racial minorities in this country only have the rights and privileges because they were given to them by white men. And that power struggle remains the same. You can see that just as clearly in women's suffrage movement. When women were, were marching for, the, for rights to vote and, and to have equal rights with, with, with men, it was white men who gave them that right. And it was those same men that could take that away from them. It's the same in the black community, only different because you have 300 plus years of of a past that oppresses. And as I've talked to people and as as I've read and and, and looked at myself in all of this, I I felt this this desire to say, well, it's different now because you have things like... um, Oh man, I'm blanking on it. Um, black people uh, having the ability to 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 get jobs. We 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 want to say uh, what is affirmative action? Thank you. Uh, affirmative action. We have we have affirmative action. We had a black president. We have all these things, but all this happened uh, because white people allowed it to happen. And affirmative action looking statistically, hasn't really changed much for the African-American experience financially. So 
there's, there's struggle, and it's difficult to talk about. Another reason that it's difficult to talk about, not because just of our history, but because of the politics that surround it. Why people seem burned out talking about race? Because we see it as a political issue only. And political issues are exhausting to talk about. We're, the election year coming up, I'm not looking forward to it. I'm just going to go ahead and delete all social media because it's exhausting. And we see this as an exhausting issue. Uh, another problem we have talking about racism is because we only see it in political terms. The media has done a fantastic job of, of using bad definitions of racism to affect our view of what this looks like. So if your political ideology prevents you from listening to the black community and having compassion, then you have the wrong political ideology. So if you're a liberal in this room, uh, I just want to speak to you specifically. Uh, Robin DiAngelo, a uh, sociologist uh, who wrote a book, several books on what it means to be white in America, uh, wrote a book called White Fragility. And, and she, the, the premise of it is really, why is it, why is it so hard to talk to white people about racism? And she, she suggests that white progressives cause the most daily damage to people of color. She says any white person who thinks he or she is not racist or is less racist or is in the choir or already gets it, that is what a white progressive is. White progressives can be the most difficult people for people of color because uh, to, to the degree that we think we have arrived, we will put our energy into making sure that others see us as having arrived. None of our energy will go into what we need to do doing uh, what we need to be doing the rest of our lives, engaging ongoing self-awareness, continuing education, relationship building, and actual anti-racist practices. So if you're in this room and you think, I got it, I understand this, racism still exists, I'm, I, am, I am with you, but you spend your time trying to convince people you're not racist and not engaging and dealing with people of color, minorities in this country, if, if your relationships don't look like that, we're part of the problem. I'm part of the problem. Conservatives, uh, a, a very common mantra among conservatives nowadays is facts don't care about your feelings, but they absolutely do not dismiss them. And they should work to inform our feelings. And so we want to look at the facts and, and instead of stamping a conservative, a, a conservative logo on them that says, well, they just need this political system to help, or they need to, they need to work harder or pull themselves up by the bootstraps. Look what I did. Look, look at all that I came out of. Instead of doing that and, and, and dismissing the feelings of an entire community of people, we need to have compassion. Again, we are part of the problem. I am part of the problem. And I'd even suggest that it's possible that uh, your faith is more in line, if your faith is more in line with the political party rather than Jesus, we should be too liberal uh, for conservatives and too conservative for liberals as believers because our view of politics are influenced by the scriptures. Another pushback is that we have a bad definition of racism. So when I just said, we are part of the problem, and, 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 and you felt like immediate like hatred towards me or something, I don't know. I think a lot of that has to do with our bad definitions. Culture and society would tell us that racism is the intentional act of racial discrimination committed by immoral individuals. That is the post-civil rights narrative for, for white people, that racists are people who are immoral, wicked people 
that intentionally, they know they're racist and they're out to discriminate. And, and if that is the definition that we're working with, absolutely, you should be angry at me for, for saying what I just said because, because I, I don't believe I'm that way. And, and it becomes, it, it's a moral issue. If, if, if that is the definition we're working with for racism, it's a moral issue and you should feel attacked. But that's not what we're looking at. That's a bad definition. A better definition of racism is to understand how racism as a whole is, is a major issue in our country and we have to see it as a, as a system that we're a part of rather than a moral attribute that we have that needs to be defended. This means understanding that racism is a system rather than just a slur. It is prejudice plus power. America was established on systems that benefited whites, and we have to be honest about that. If we can approach racism this way, knowing that there are systems in place, we're a part of it, we can humble ourselves enough to, to, to try to fix those systems, speak into those systems, change those systems. Racism is very different from prejudice, and we, I think we connect the two a lot. Racism are the systems that we're all a part of that continually oppress. Prejudice is something also that we all have. We can be honest about that. I have prejudice towards people. If you don't feel like you have prejudice, drive alone at night, come to a stop sign. If you see a black man walking towards you, do you lock your car? Do you check? Is that the gut reaction in your heart? Why? Does past experience tell you that you should do that? Or does our cultural narrative about race inform that decision. It's difficult. It's the water that we drink. We have privilege as white people in America, and that's also hard to confess. White people in this country have privilege. Um, some, I'm going to give you some statistics from Pew Research and the Center of American Progress. Um, we have financial privilege. African Americans own approximately one-tenth of the wealth of white Americans. That's ten cent for every dollar that we have. Black households have fewer and are in greater need of personal savings than their white counterparts. For a, ver- uh, for a variety of reasons, blacks are mostly li- most likely to experience negative income shocks, but are less likely to have the access to emergency savings. As a consequence, blacks are more likely to fall uh, behind in their bills and go into debt during times of emergency. African Americans face systematic challenges in narrowing the, the wealth gap with whites. The wealth gap persists regardless of household, education, marital status, age, or income. Let that sit in. We want to, and I've done this. We want to say, well, the, the black community, the fatherless homes, if they would just get, to get, get it together on that, then, then they could start accumulating wealth. It's not true. It doesn't matter. Statistically, the facts show that does not matter. African Americans have fewer assets than whites and are less likely to be homeowners, to own their own business, or to have retirement accounts. The most recent data available from 2016 shows that when blacks owned such assets, they were worth significantly less than the assets owned by whites. The only difference being race. These facts are true, even when compared to poor whites. So again, the the gut reaction sometimes will be, well, you know, I grew up in poverty and, and experienced some of the same things. These, these, these statistics hold true even among, when, even when compared 
to poor whites in America. They, we have educational privilege. African-American students are less likely than white students to have access to college-ready resources. If you look at the school systems, you, that is overwhelmingly true. African-American students are often located in schools with less qualified teachers, with, lower, uh, with teachers having lower salaries, or novice teachers. Research has shown evidence of systematic bias in teachers, and this, this hit me hard as a teacher. Systematic bias in teacher expectations for African-American students and non-black students. We were, teachers were found to have lower expectations for the black students than black teachers. White teachers had lower expectations. Students of color are all often uh, concentrated in schools with fewer resources. Schools with 90% or more students of color spend $733 less per student per year than schools with 90% or more white students. We have familial privileges. 25% of black families were married and had children um, based on a, a, a statistic here. And so of those 25%, 70% of black children were born out of wedlock. And then looking at seg uh, segmented nuclear families among the black community where you have either a single mother and a child or a single father and a child. Of, of those segmented nuclear families, 94% were single mother households. And then we have social privileges. In her book, I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World of Whiteness, Austin Channing Brown describes the many ways that she felt othered as a black person, as a black woman, in a typical work day in a predominantly white, faith-based institution. She said she experienced everything from people being surprised that she worked in her office to being reprimanded for refusing to let a colleague pet her hair to having her ideas in a meeting dismissed until a white person repeated them to the group. Pastor Eric Mason described uh, white people getting pulled over by a police officer will have the thought, what did I do? A black person getting pulled over will have the thought, what's about to be done to me? Even if there's innocence. And we feel this, this pull, like when Trayvon Martin is shot dead, to say, well, let's just wait for the facts. Let's see this happen. Let's see, let's see what happens. Let's not lament with, with a community of people who are hurting because an image bearer was shot dead. We want to justify it. And that shows how little we care. Ultimately, we don't have to think about it. We, don't, we do not have to think about race. There are, there are churches, white churches in this community who will not talk about this today because they don't have to. We don't have to think about it. We could continue living day to day and never once think about race because we have the privilege not to. Black people have to constantly navigate and assimilate to a dominantly white culture in this country. Flipping back and forth. If your initial thought uh, in, in me sharing all of that is, is whose fault all this is politically, uh, you're missing the point. These things are happening and the injustices should break our hearts. And so why does any of this matter? Why are we talking about this? Because we need to see clearly what is happening and not be blind to what's happening in our country. 
We don't need to let culture tell us what's true, but let the evidence tell us what's true. We don't need the culture to give us our emotional jumping off point on how we deal with race, but the scriptures. We need to be honest. And Proverbs would call that wisdom. And so we have difficulty being honest. We want to say, that's not me. I didn't do anything racist. I haven't done that. I didn't own slaves. How often do we hear that? Why should I bear the responsibility? Because I'm not a part of that. Our, individualis- our individualism in America keeps us from seeing the nature of corporate and generational sin. We're so focused on me as a person. What have I done that we fail to see how we as a country have sinned? And, and so what I want us to really, because this helped me see it so clearly, is, is the abortion issue in this country. We will jump on in a minute how we as a country are guilty and people will fight for, for the right to life for an unborn child, and rightly so. We are guilty as a country for this. In the same way, we are guilty as a country for racism. Our individualism keeps us from seeing this as, as, as a corporate sin that we should all be repentant of. But let's look at scripture and see where, where this breaks down. How, how, where am I getting this? First of all, Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3 sinned, and the whole world was condemned. The whole world is guilty because of one man's sin. In Joshua 7, a man named Achan, an Israelite, um, was commanded, all of Israel going into the promised land, commanded uh, to strictly, uh, they were strictly commanded not to plunder, not to take things for their own possession. And Achan takes some plunder, and a, a robe, some wealth, and he takes it for himself and hides it under his tent. He breaks the law. Achan himself breaks the law. He goes against God's will, goes against the law for the Israelites. And when it's discovered, he's not the only one punished. His entire family is stoned to death with him. And so let me just stop right there. Most, most people in, in most cultures, in most centuries, other than the one that we in are now, understand why that happened. And if you're an American and you have some objection to some part of the scriptures that you find offensive, I want you to realize that it's, it's your culture, your cultural location that's causing the offense. Don't you dare think for a second that the Bible is offensive in those ways. You may be offended, but it's because of the sin in our heart. It's very culturally narrow of us to think that because most uh, to think that most people, most places, uh, don't understand this, this concept of generational and corporate sin. Most people, most places, know that we're not just the product of our choices, our individual choices. That if you do something bad, the fact that you can do it, what helped you become the, the kind of person that can do it, was, to a great degree, your family. Your family produced you directly or at least failed to keep you from becoming that. And therefore, at at least actively or passively, your family participated in your guilt. Most people, most places in, in America, especially white Americans, don't understand this. Most people, most places recognize that because you're the product of your own individual choices, you are the product, 
uh, that you're not the product of your own individual choices. You are the product of a community. Not only are you the product of a community, to a great degree, uh, you are even a participant in the community and are producing other kinds of people that have the same character as you. This is all done in community. And so Joshua 7 says that there is a corporate responsibility inside the family, which is why Achan's family was killed with him. But let's, let's move further in, into the Old Testament. In Daniel 9, we're talking about corporate guilt. Daniel is, is praying for the guilt and responsibility inside an entire race or culture of people. He confesses sin. He repents for and says that it's his responsibility to repent for sins that his ancestors did, that he didn't do at all. And not all of Israel that he is praying and repenting and interceding for is a part of Israel. Not all of them are a part of the covenant, but he's still praying. We are shaped by our past as individuals. We understand that. Who I, who I am today is affected by who I was how I was raised. We get that individually. Do we see that corporately? Because we have 300 years of racial sin. There is no way that we are unaffected by that today. That is ignorant to think. Jeff Schulte at the conference that I had a a huge blessing uh, to go to this this weekend said this, and it, it hit me hard. If a generation doesn't do the work, the children will have to do the work for them. If a generation will not do the work of repentance, which white America has not done, the children will have to do that work for them. And so I want to stop right there and, and just rest in this, this thought of how does that even happen? It's overwhelming to consider that. How do we Bear, bear the shame and guilt. And, and I think that's why it's so hard for us to deal with because that's overwhelming. That's crushing. But we have to do it. Our inability to talk about racism and prejudice is ultimately a sin issue. We don't want to deal with how deeply ingrained it is in us. That takes a lot of hard work. So we have to deal with sin. We have to see that God's heart is for the oppressed. His heart is for justice. The church, unfortunately, has been very silent on this issue. The white church has been very silent on this issue. Eric Mason um, has said that we must see that Christ's death on the cross impacts not only us going to heaven in the future, but us being heaven here. The, the death and work of Jesus on the cross affects us bringing heaven to Monroe, Louisiana. And so we're going to now look at what scripture has to say on justice. So turn to Mark, or excuse me, Matthew 23. Matthew 23 will be in verse 23 and 24. The book of John, uh, the gospel of John is about Jesus as the son of God. He, he portrays Jesus as God's son. That's, that's his focus. That's where he goes. The, the book of Luke is, is displaying the humanity of Christ as he is the son of man. And Mark shows the suffering servant. But Matthew deals with Jesus, the messianic king of Israel. 
And he's not just the king of a nation, he's the king of the universe. And this book as a whole shows us that what it looks like to be a kingdom representative here on earth. So when we look at what it looks like for us to bring the kingdom of God here on earth, Matthew is, is a great place to look because that's what he's focused on. Jesus fulfilling the messianic prophecies and bringing, ushering in the kingdom of God, what that looks like. And so let's read. It says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. The one and only point that I have is that Jesus connects justice to intimacy with God. Being with God is about wrestling with the things that he doesn't like. Being intimate with the Father is wrestling with these issues that we find so uncomfortable and, sh- and, and should shake us to our core, but will bring intimacy with the Father. And so he starts off in verse 23, woe. This isn't like, wow. This is, woe is used as a prophetic warning to the people because of a lack of response to the word of the Lord. So you go back and read the prophets in the Old Testament, and they're constantly saying, woe to you, Israel, because you have failed to do this. You have failed to obey the word of God. Jesus here is speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, and he says, woe, you have failed to follow the word of God. You have failed this. And this is absurd because of who the scribes and the Pharisees were in this culture. We we have the benefit of like looking at scripture and seeing them as the bad guys. So we, we disconnect ourselves from them. But who were the scribes and Pharisees? The scribes were the lawyers. They transcribed the law so meticulously to make sure that when it was copied and interpreted, it was done with clarity. It was written, uh, they would do this so that when the scriptures were written, um, it it would be so similar to exactly like the original translation, which, by the way, side sermon, is a huge reason why we can trust the accuracy of scripture. It was the work that these guys did. And they taught the people of Israel so that there was clarity on, on the scriptures. So these guys are faithful in the eyes of the people to the word of the Lord. The Pharisees were a group of people who, who really started off well, meaning well. Uh, some scholars believe that the Pharisees started out as something like a monk. John the Baptist would have been considered in this, in this group originally, like going off into the wilderness because they were so frustrated with the, with the lack of obedience from Israel uh, that they wanted to kind of start a monastic community that really followed that. So it started off really as good intentions. But what happens is the Pharisees come back to Israel and, and they're walking around basically judging everyone. They want to snoop into everyone's business to make sure that what they're doing is what they're supposed to do in God's eyes, but they never look to examine their own lives. And so to the people of Israel, these, these, are, these are the dudes. These are the, these are the people that they want to be like. And for Jesus to say, woe to you, you were not faithfully following the scriptures was absurd. If they can't do it, how can I? And he calls them hypocrites. The word hypocrite means actor. One pastor compared this to, to mimes. 
moms, you know, they dress up, they wear, they wear black, paint their face white, they, they pretend like they're, they're moving objects that aren't really there, they're acting with things that aren't actually there. Mimes are people who are acting like they're doing something with something that isn't really there. This is the image that we should have of the Pharisees. It looks like it's there, but it's not. And no one is calling these people out because they see them as the spiritually elite. And Jesus stands toe-to-toe with them, and he calls them hypocrites because they're acting like they're obeying God, but they're not. It's possible to know all the right music bands, to read all the right books, to know the right podcasts, to have the right translation of the Bible and the best Bible reading plan, which hopefully 2020 we are all doing, um, to have those, but at the end of the day, there can be soul anemia in the middle of our spiritual ability. We have the capacity to do that, but we are sh- we're starving for the, n- the nutrients that we need because it's not there. It's possible for that to happen. He moves on, he says, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Pharisees had laws about the laws. They created laws to make sure that the people followed the law of God. They wanted to make sure that they were, they were so in line with the word of God. Well, how do we do that? Well, we're going to create laws to help us do that. And, and that's what they judge everyone by. So, so, so they judged you based on the laws that they created about the law, which was based on their view of how you should keep the law. Don't miss that. That's, that's legalism to its core. They had a view, an expectation of what it looked like for you to obey scripture. And so they created rules for you to follow. And if you broke those laws on their view, you were sinning. That's why Jesus over and over again says, you, you dump a burden. You, you put a yoke on the people that is too great to hold. The Pharisees had laws about the laws and they would put that on the people. And, and, and this image that Jesus is giving here, you tithe mint and dill and cumin. He says that they would weigh out everything to the seed to make sure that they were giving exactly a tenth to the Lord. He's, he's, they're weighing out dill. Okay, I, I went and looked in our spice cabinet. Dill is, is like a leaf. They, I mean, they would, they would weigh that out to make sure that they were tithing exactly a tenth to the Lord. Jesus could have named anything here, like ox or sheep or, or mentioned money. You're giving a tenth of these things. But, but he addresses here the lightest weight spices to let them know that they are diligently committing themselves to lightweight stuff. They're so focused on small things that they're failing to look at what's really important. And so it's important to see also that he's not shaming them for their meticulous commitment, their diligency to the law, but he's saying that they need to be consistent with how meticulous they are in all areas of their life. In all areas of our, our life, we need to be consistent. And so the weightiness that he mentions here is not physical weight. You've neglected the weightier things of the law. This isn't like heavy gold, but it's how close it burns to the heart of the Lord. They've forgotten to follow the things that are closest to God's heart, and then he mentions what they are. He says they, they neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy 
and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And so a, a, a Bible dictionary has defined justice this way, making a fair decision based on God's word, a standard by which judgments or evaluations are made, equitable treatment, fair treatment of all people and proper unbiased application of God's word. That is what justice is. So believers must realize that justice is not based on the Constitution. We as Americans need to realize that that is not our standard for justice. It's not based on the amendments. And don't hear me say that I'm like anti-America. I love America. I love our freedoms. But we, we as believers, can be honest enough with ourselves to know that America's not perfect. We're kidding ourselves if we think that. Because justice doesn't start with the Constitution amendments. Justice starts with God. His nature is justice. Justice is God's disposition when his holiness is properly respected or violated. So there's a reward when his holiness is respected. When we see it as right, there's a reward. But when it's violated, there's judgment. And we know, based on Romans, that none of us are righteous, no, not one. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And so here, God's justice is not a reward because we have sinned. His, his justice is judgment. And the justice is only satisfied by death, for the wages of sin is death, unless there is some sort of redemption put in place, which we're going to look at in a minute. Pro- proper execution of justice is not based on man's law, but God's. So when we as Christians see in the injustice in this world based on man's law, we must be willing to speak up. We must be willing to speak up. Even if that means we sacrifice what it looks like to be politically right. We must do justice. We must use our position and privilege to speak about justice. If we don't, we neglect justice and we neglect mercy. We neglect the very things that are closest to the heart of God. Mercy is often used in the Old Testament, most often used in, in the Old Testament to describe the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was kept in the Holy of Holies in the temple where, where, the, where the presence of God dwelt. This is the place in the temple where God dwelt among his people. And, and remember who he's talking to. He, he is warning the Pharisees and the scribes. They knew this. They're, they're, they're very aware of, of what the law says about the Ark of the Covenant. And so inside the Ark was the law of God, the Ten Commandments. Inside of it, uh, we have the Ten Commandments. And on top of it were winged cherubim. Cherubim in the scriptures were protectors and worshipers of the Lord. And so we, we know that because God placed a, a cherubim with a flaming sword outside of the Garden of Eden to protect it from Adam and Eve coming back into it. So the cherubim on the ark are there as a representative of protecting the law of God. And on top of the cherubim is what's called the mercy seat. The mercy seat is the center on the top of the ark. And it's there to show us that the thing that should be most protected and the most holy thing in the holy of holies is mercy. 
Mercy is having compassion. On top of the law is compassion. That is there for for Israel to see and be reminded, you can't keep this, but I have mercy on you. It's the most protected thing in there. And that, and every year, the high priest would enter on Yom Kippur into the, the Holy of Holies to, to confess and repent of the sins of the nation. And God's presence would come in and reside on the mercy seat. Even though the, the high priest is, is the anointed one to come in to speak to the Lord, he needed mercy. He could not speak to the Lord without mercy. You and I cannot come to the Lord without his mercy because his judgment of us requires death. We need to have mercy to commune with God. We need mercy to speak to the Lord and we did not receive what we deserved, which is death. We received his mercy. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross he came. He lived a perfect life. He spoke out about justice. He did the hard work. He was the most racially unified person there ever was. And so if we want to be racially unified as a church, we need to follow the example of Christ and not be afraid to speak out when things happen because it's uncomfortable for us. Our hearts should break because of the injustice in this world. And, it, and honestly, as a church, it doesn't feel like that's the case. We come in, we have good, solid teaching. We, we worship, we, we commune with the Lord, and we go out and nothing changes. We have been preaching a sermon on racial reconciliation, mentioning these things for years. And look around. There's no difference. So do we believe that, or are we neglecting the justice and mercy and faithfulness of the Lord? Our hearts should break. This should, this should stir in us hatred and anger for the sin of this world. And to be complacent is just to continue in the sin. We have to, have to care about what's going on. Jesus died so that we could pursue this so we could pursue racial harmony and diversity. It is impossible on our own. That's why it's so overwhelming. And, and I've, I've sat and listened to sermon after sermon on racial reconciliation and thought, what do I do now? Okay, you, you have crushed me. I, don't, I, I hear this, I feel this, what do I do? And I, I, I get that, like I understand it. We, we want to know what to do. There, there is application and, and we want that. And so we want to be told what to do when there are resources upon resources upon resources that will help you learn what to do. And we, we won't even take that step. Google. Noun and a verb. Google it. It will help you. If this is something we really care about. Jesus died to make this possible. It's impossible on our own. The death of Christ provides mercy. The judgment that, that we deserve specifically around this sin this morning that we're looking at of, of racism isn't poured out on us because of the mercy and grace of, of Christ at the cross and his resurrection. 
apart from from that, but apart from the work of the Lord doing this among us and changing our hearts, it can't be done. It's impossible. We will stand in the streets and argue with each other about it till we're blue in the face because at that point, it's just a political issue. But we have to see that this unification and harmony among race is dear to the heart of the Lord. We have to start caring. When Christ returns, the struggle will be over. And we will know that it's worth it. Because when we worship with every tribe and tongue and nation, we will know that justice is secured. Harmony has been achieved. But until that day comes, we wrestle with the injustice in this world because it burns in the heart of God. And we have to be shown, we have been shown, and we need to show so much mercy. And so practical next steps, what does that look like for the crossing? The first thing is we need to repent and confess. No matter where you're at this morning, what what level of conviction you feel, we need to repent. Like Daniel crying out, it's not just individual. We need to repent for the sin of our nation on a regular basis because we sin often. We need to educate ourselves. Google, read, audiobooks. There are resources upon resources. If you, if, you, if you want some resources, come talk to me. I will help you find resources. But Google's a good place to look. Seek and pray for sustained relationships with people who are not white. Seek that out. Pray for that. And, and this is the, the tension I always feel around that. Well, I don't want to just have like a token black friend. Okay, but I would rather be accused of tokenism than, than be completely aloof to what's really going on and, and to be passive in what's happening. Seek and pray for that, for sustained relationships. And then we as a church need to pray for diversity. We need to pray for unity in that diversity. We need to pray for God to send black men, Asian men, Hispanic men to be elders in this church. We need to pray for these things to happen among our leadership. And we need to talk about this honestly with one another. In light of the gospel, knowing that all of us have sinned and been shown so much grace, we can, we can honestly come to one another and share. This is, this is where I see racial tendencies, racial sin in my heart, in my own life, and I need help. And, and that's okay. It is, I, have, I have stood up here for, I don't know, an hour and, and confessed to you that, that I am part of the problem. I see it in myself. I know it. Please don't walk out of this room and, and, and let this just be an uncomfortable sermon that you did not uh, properly engage. But in missional communities and in DNA, dig deep. Don't avoid it because it's uncomfortable. And I, I believe that the city of Monroe could be changed by a church that cared about this. It could be radically different. So let's pursue this, church. 
Let's humble ourselves and pursue this. And, and I want to invite you, for real, like, I don't have this figured out. Come talk to me. If you're like, man, you were wrong about this, please talk to me. Don't just leave and, and never come back to the crossing because y- you didn't want to engage in that conversation with someone. Let's pray.